It's a pleasure to be with you here today on such a gorgeous day. And most of you know something about us already. Um, have a wonderful wife, Rondi. We're going up for 47 years. We got four kids, 10 grandkids, seven of which are in this area. If you want a picture of all of us for your dartboard, there's some on the table in the back. Um, briefly, we went to Mexico. We were in Me we one year of language school, 17 years in the world's largest city, and 24 years in Leon. The navigator work was turned over to Mexicans, most of them laymen, in 1993. The city we were in was turned over to laymen in 2014, and since then we've basically been doing mentoring and training. And we're back here for one, our first real sabbatical to figure out what the next step is, because I think you know the only retirement from the kingdom of God is death. So, uh, <laughs> I uh, thank you all for praying, too. We really appreciate that. That's the basis of everything. <clears throat> I titled this Missions, Who is Going to Reach the World? And then I was thinking, I thought, what was Jesus' plan? And I wrote down, world's on his heart. How's he going to start? And I thought, man, if I were a rapper, I could make that into rap. World's on his heart. Where's it going to start? But I'm not going to subject you to that. <laughs> I will remind you that the Great Commission, which you have all heard many times, the 12, well, it was 11 in that moment, were told to teach each generation everything Jesus had told them. Well, part of what Jesus told them was to go out and reach the world. So the Great Commission is not only self-perpetuating, but nobody is exempt. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. Um, the role of lay people, because we are firmly convinced that lay people are the real heroes of the gospel. It was a lay person that reached me at the University of Washington. I was a spaced-out freshman, just finding out how much marijuana I could smoke in a week. And a layman came to my room and shared the gospel with me. And it's interesting how they did it, because I have kind of a double thing I want to say today. One is the importance of all of us. God wants to use us as lay people. The other thing is, in this world, especially for the hostility, we're increasingly facing the, the skepticism, the cynicism, is the use of questions. The people that came to my room, they started with questions. And they said, um, do you think that the whole world is sinned? I'm not going to give you my stupid answer. Um, but they asked questions. Do you think everybody's sinned? What does sin produce? What does Jesus have to do with that? Anything? And then after looking at the scriptures, well, do you want to do anything about this? You see how the, the use of questions, it takes people off the defensive, and they have to do something about a question. I can talk here all morning, and you can go to sleep. 
But if I t ask you a question, all of a sudden, you're like, well, what, what am I going to do? And so um, we've been impressed. We were over at the Monday night thing, and the number of people who have come out of this church and gone to other places. This church has a wonderful heritage that way, and we hope it's going to continue. But also, the key verse for this week was in 2 Corinthians about ambassadors for Christ. And really, all of us are supposed to be ambassadors. We're all representing <clears throat> a kingdom that is not here, and we're weak people. They can beat us up on whatever they want, but we represent somebody that's a little bit bigger. And that's true for every single one of us. Whether we want to or not, we are representing God. I want to tell you about a survey I just read. It's, this was the questions. All Christians have a responsibility to spiritually invest in others. Only 27% said yes. This was among evangelical Christians. And the number that struggle to engage with people not of their own culture, well, that was 30% uh, for the millennials and 29% for the Gen Xers. So, where do we find people to engage with? Because one thing we've noticed, we've only been back two months, but the pace of life here is crazy. I want to go back to Mexico. <laughs> but where do you find the time? I think that's one of the big things we struggle with. Where do I find the time? And the other one is, what do I do? Well, I think if we're really going to reach people, it has to be natural. Very few of us have the time to go out and carve out another area where we're going to reach the world. And so there's three areas that we all have. One is family. One is friends. And one is our normal, everyday life. And I'm going to briefly give three examples of that in Scripture. Family, the first two are from John 1, and you can look at those later. Uh, family. John the Baptist talks about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And wow, who's this? And so they go after him. And Jesus turns around, and it's interesting. He uses a question. He says, what are you looking for? Isn't that a great question to ask somebody? What are you looking for? Well, the upshot is they go with him, they, they talk so much, they spend the night there, is, I think. I think that's what it's saying. And then the next day, Andrew, he's really had an experience. So what's the first thing he does? He goes and grabs his brother, Simon, Peter. Now, isn't that interesting? The first place he goes is family. And he brings Peter back, and Jesus has an interaction with him. But can you imagine if, if Andrew would have thought, oh, man, I really like this Jesus guy, but I, I, I'd be too embarrassed to tell my brother about him. That might have made a difference for the church, right? <laughs> so number one is family. Number two is friends. The second person, well, there's two of them, uh, Philip, has his encounter with Jesus, and he's really impressed. And what's the first thing he does? He goes and gets his friend Nathaniel. 
and brings them to Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus also starts with a question with Nathaniel. He says, because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Interesting question. But suppose, suppose Philip has said, now, well, Nathaniel was probably visiting, it says in the end of John, where you find him hanging out with the apostles, that he was from Bethesda, Bethesda I can't even pronounce these anymore in English, Bethesda, something like that. And that's 25 miles from there. At first I thought, wow, Philip went 25 miles to tell his friend. Now I think probably uh, Nate was visiting. But he went and told his friend immediately. And then he, he gets on the wagon too. So another natural area of contact are friends. The third is daily life. And the one I, I chose for that was from John 4. You all know the story about the Samaritan woman. Oh, by the way, all these people were laymen when Jesus met them. He did not go to a seminary and recruit rabbis. These are laymen that he's using to reach the world. Well, the next layman is actually a, a lay woman, the Samaritan woman, and she didn't actually have a sterling testimony at that point in life. She'd robbed six people's husbands, and so she couldn't even go out with the women to get water. They didn't want, she had to go at noon when it was hot. But um, she wants to know about Jesus in the interaction with them. A lot happens. I'm not going to go into it. You probably know the story. But she gets really impressed, and she runs back to the village, leaves her water jar... And then she talks, and I think it's really interesting, the scripture is very clear, she talks to the men, she must have had quite a deal with men, but anyway, she talks to the men and says, I just met a guy who told me everything I ever did, and everybody in that village knows what she's done. Can this be the Christ? You see how she's using questions? And then they come out, and you, you see a happy ending to that too. Well, my question is, Hasn't God changed something in you that someone else can see? Isn't there something there that we have that somebody does not have, which is Jesus? And um, one of the guys who was a student of mine, when I went to the, uh, Mexico City, I, I taught uh, a class at a university for a year to just one class to get my feet on the ground, and I made friends with uh, the students, and one of them was probably the smartest guy in the class, and he came to Christ. And then he came, after he was growing, he began to talk about same-sex attraction. Because he had been abused when he was a child. Now, I didn't have clue, one, as to what to do with somebody with same-sex attraction. And I went to the navigators, and back then, this was... A while back, they didn't have any clue either. So we did the best we could, but he finally said he was tired of fighting it and dropped out into homosexuality for five years, open homosexuality, lived with a guy, had a ring and everything. And God finally brought him back to himself. But during this time, I continued getting lunch with him from time to time. The whole community knew why he had left and so I wasn't condoning what it was doing. I was continuing a relationship. 
And when he came back to Christ five years later, he called me up and he got back into the real Christian life. And he had a ministry with a lot of his homosexual friends. My son Sam, who was not suffering same-sex attractions, went with him, and they saw a number of homosexual people come to Christ. And basically, most of them had AIDS, and most of them died. But they had Christ before they died. And so it was the natural environment that this was working in. Now, there are, there's a group called Gen X. I looked this up. Right now, they're 38 to 47 years old. How many of you are in that age group? Okay. Well, there's 65 million of you in the United States right now. Do you know that? And many will not go to church, if it, even if it's convenient, even if it's relevant to their life, even if they have great programs and seminars. Many will not. But you know what the one thing that they say they will go to church? This is the question. Would you go if a friend invited you? And they almost unanimously say yes. The relationship factor is so important. And so as people lose contact with reality, and let me tell you, we are seeing people... You know, they think they can determine their gender, that the, the genes that are in every single cell in their body don't count for anything. That's losing contact with reality. So people are losing contact with reality all around us. And so I, I want to quote, maybe you've heard of a guy named Lee Strobel. He's an apologist. That means he defends the faith. Listen to this. He says, years ago, Christian apologists would figuratively line up the targets of their evangelism and machine gun them down with facts, evidence, and arguments. And it worked. That no longer works. For most people. For the most part, evangelism happens through relationships. And all of us are capable of having some relationships with the areas I mentioned, family, friends, or my everyday life. Um, we live in a 55-plus building in Uptown. Uptown is not the most conservative place in Minnesota. <laughs> and our building is great, but it's just full of old people. I don't know what to do about that. But... The receptionists are younger, and we're making friends with the receptionists. We've already had one God conversation with one, and sometimes right across the street is one of the most famous places in Minneapolis called Isles Bun and Cafe. And so sometimes we bring back a little extra coffee cake or something for the people at the desk because we want to build this relationship. And I need to clarify that when you have a long-term relationship, you can... You can identify yourself with Christ briefly, clearly, and then back off. Now, if you're next to somebody in the plane, you're never going to see him again. Maybe you need to be a little more upfront with the gospel. But normally, if you're going to have a longer-term relationship like you do with family, friends, and your work, then you can afford to back off a little and just 
wait for God to open a door, but you're thinking, what question would help this person really reorient their life? And I did the same thing with the, uh, one of the clerks at uh, uh, Isles Bun. Tat- so many tattoos, I could hardly see the skin. But right here it said Vidi, V-I-D-I. Well, in Spanish, Vida is life. So I said, does that mean life? And so this person said, no, this is Veni Vidi Vinci, which is what Julius Caesar said that said means I came, I saw, I conquered. And I said, wow, that's really neat. And so we'll see what happens there. <laughs> okay. Um, there's an example. You have to look for it for yourself. But in the book of Acts, you have everybody's in Jerusalem. All the salt is in the salt shaker, and Jesus says it needs to be out in the decaying world. So he allows the Stephen to be killed. And then they kick out everybody but the apostles. I guess they got tired of the apostles just being let out of jail every time they put them in. I don't know, but the apostles got to stay and everybody else went. You think, oh, no, no more movement. No more movement in, outside of Jerusalem. We don't have any apostles with us. Well, the church of Antioch was formed by laymen who just started talking to people. And it's very interesting. They went farther on than the apostles had who were only dealing with Jews at that point. They said the church at Antioch, they, it had, was full of non-Jews. And they did not. The people around said, what is this group? We understand that they have these, these Jews in the synagogue and some of them think that this guy, Jesus, was the Messiah, but we don't understand this. There's non-Jews in this group started by laymen. And they said, well, what is it? What is the only thing that's holding them together? And you know what? This was the first place that the believers were called, do you know the word? Christians. They said, we can't figure out what's holding these people together. The only thing that's holding them together is this Jesus guy. And this was all started by laymen. And the church in Jerusalem sent some people to check it out. And, and uh, Paul went did his missionary journeys from there and stuff like that. But I, I'm going I'm to give you now just a couple s- practical steps that might work. Or maybe you're already doing them. I don't know. I think, how do we participate in the kingdom of God on earth? One, we've got to know what the gospel is. I would guess that most of you already have a pretty good idea. And people use, like John 3.16 summarizes a good part of it, and you can memorize that and stuff like that, but we need to know what we're talking about first. And that'll be my last point, too. But um, Now, the nice thing is, First Peter 3, it says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. That's, that's the golden moment. Somebody said, wow, you know, you've got cancer and you don't seem to be freaking out like I would if I had cancer. Why is that? And then you, that's, that's beautiful. They've asked the question. They've invited you in. But we need to know what we're going to say. And another thing we can do, we all have a testimony. 
You can use um, examples like Paul's testimony and try to get something that you can keep down to three minutes so you don't overwhelm them. If somebody says, hey, you know, why is it that you returned the money when they gave you too much change? Or something like that. You say, well, this is the reason. Okay, that's the first thing. We have to know the gospel. The second is the Holy Spirit. Um, But you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just out there spinning our flesh wheels. And it's sad to say that. I've done it lots of times. Um, I'm not going to give you some of my embarrassing stories, but you really need to go out with the Holy Spirit. And I asked a guy who used to be in charge of evangelism for the whole navigators, and I said, do you ever feel something in the pit of your stomach like I do when you go out? And he said, I do, and I praise God for that because it is him reminding me that if I don't let him be accompanying me, I'm just wasting my time. So if you have an opportunity and you have something in the pit of your stomach, you can just shoot up a prayer to God and say, Holy Spirit, do something, because if you don't, it's not going to count for much. Okay, the third thing is build a credible platform. Build a credible platform, especially when you have long-term relationships. Now, one, one of the number one reasons why people are afraid to really come out for their faith is they think but they will see my mistakes and throw them in my face. That's true. It's true that we're going to make mistakes, and it's true that they're going to throw them in our face. So what? I mean, we have to get over that. And I just finished a book, really interesting book, called Questioning Evangelism. Now, it does not mean that the person was saying, I'm questioning whether or not we should do evangelism. No, he's saying evangelism really works well when you use questions. And he's got a whole chapter on how to deal with the issue of hypocrisy, which is, how often do we get that? Oh, the church, so many hypocrites in the church, you know. And sometimes we have done things that are hypocritical. Has anyone ever beside me done anything hypocritical? Yes, we have. And so there is a solution for that. And when I began to learn the solution, I did not like it, but my wife helped me. It is to admit when the person knows you did something wrong and ask their forgiveness. The first time I had to face that really was when my two-year-old son peed in his pants when he was supposed to be doing it someplace else. And I punished him as if he had done something wrong. He's just a creative type. He was sitting there in some other world, and wow, that's what happened, you know? So I did that, and Rondi said, Sam, you were wrong. Well, maybe I was, but, you know, but uh, you need to go ask his forgiveness. Oh, come on, Rondi. If I do that, he's going to lose respect for me. I'm his father. Rondi said, you know, he knows you were wrong, you know you're wrong, and if you don't go and ask his forgiveness, he is going to lose respect for you. So I got down on my knees, and I asked his forgiveness for that. And you know what? I think that's what keeps our children within the Christian community when we're willing to humble ourselves when we've blown it and tell them that. 
We had another time, we lived in this apartment building in Mexico City, and we had, uh, you open the gate, there's a row of cars, you open the gate to take yours out, I was taking mine out, and some other lady in the building, who wasn't of the greatest reputation either, she opens her gate, well, it, it makes my gate close on my car as I'm backing it out. So I let her know what I thought of that. And so, Rondi said, um, Sam, look what you just did. I said, yeah, I told her what she did. And <laughs> she said something like, well, you know, I said, and I justified myself. She was wrong. I was there first. She said, well, maybe, but was the way you responded to her the way Jesus would respond to her? Well, maybe not, maybe not, but you know she was wrong. She said, you're going to go ask her forgiveness. And so Ronnie baked some cookies and sent me up to her apartment to ask her forgiveness. And I knocked on the door with fear and trepidation. And she came to the door and she looked at me and I thought, is she going to hit me or what? So I said, you know, I just wanted to tell you, the way I treated you the other day was totally wrong. And I want to ask your forgiveness. And here's some cookies. I didn't know what she was going to do. I thought... Maybe she will hit me, but she'll take the cookies first. <laughs> you know what she did? She started crying. People are not used to someone asking them forgiveness and admitting what they've done wrong. And that, that can be a great door opener. And so our blunders, we don't want to make them, but they might even be able to be used for the gospel. Okay. Four, pray for sensitivity. And that's just saying, God's already at work. And instead of saying, God, this is what I think you should do today, say, God, what are you doing and how can I cooperate? That just little prayer. Fifth, ask sincere questions. I'm back on the question thing if you haven't noticed. It ha they have to be sincere. We really should want to know what is going inside of that person's heart and soul. And just know they're going to give you answers that are very different from your worldview, my worldview. But we really want to know who it is we're talking with, and that will help us in being able to ask better questions or gain more credibility with that person. And um, <clears throat> a friend gave me a book this summer that he said had the platinum question. So I thought, wow, the platinum question, what's that? Here's the platinum question. Supposing that God actually exists and you could ask him any question, what would it be? Isn't that a great question? It's open-ended. You know, you'd have to have the right time to ask it. Another one is just real simple. What is your concept of God? Oh, there isn't one. Oh, okay, tell me more about that. Why, why, why do you think that? You know what I mean? Um, Sincere questions, really wanting to know what's going on inside that person to open the door for the gospel. And then the final one is really clear, basic, and probably obvious. Get to know Jesus better. Every day, time with him in the word and the prayer. In prayer. Um, I developed a, a survey when I was in college for one of my classes called the Edelstein Philosophical Preference Survey and had all these questions and people would answer them and then you stick them in the computer, which was really, really basic back then, and it would show the clusters. There's one cluster, I guess you'd call it born-again believer, 
there were a whole bunch of questions. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Do you think the Bible's the word of God? Yes. Do you think Jesus died for your sin? Yes. Those yes questions would go into that bundle. But you know what was the number one thing that identified the people who were really believers? I read the Bible at least three times a week, much more than all the other doctrinal explanations. So I urge you, make sure you do not neglect <clears throat> the Word of God in getting to know Jesus. And the other thing that I'm learning, I've stuck my foot in my mouth a number of times recently, especially because I am not aware enough of the U.S. culture to know when I'm overstepping my bounds on politics, political and other things, is try to keep it on Jesus. We were talking with a couple in California, and some issue came up that I have strong feelings about, because I have strong feelings about a lot of issues. That's the way I am. And so I gave my strong opinion. We're supposed to be having a conversation about God, right? The wife got up and said, I cannot accept that, and walked out on me. What did I do? I, I wasted an opportunity that was leading toward talking about Jesus because I had to stick in my political views. Isn't that stupid? Uh, we should all have political views. I hope we're all going to vote. But we need to keep the significant conversations on Jesus and the Word as much as we can, and I'm learning that. So, to summarize, Jesus came to save the lost. Let's live with the same perspective. Jesus asked good questions. Let's try to learn to do more of that ourselves, especially in the environment we find ourselves in. And let's work for relationships, natural relationships with non-believers, be they family, friends, or a job. Now, also on the back table out there, I have a one-page thing of questions that Jesus used that might even work for evangelism. <laughs> So if you want that, there's about 20 of those out there too. So thank you very much for your time, and it's, it's so wonderful to have a church like you behind us and praying for us. Thank you.